Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Boyle. Thank you. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds for March 18th, 2015. Two days till spring, whether or not you believe it, walking in from the parking lot this morning, uh, it's coming. It's also uh, uh, Patient Safety Week, uh, Quality and Patient Safety Week, and so hopefully you've been able to see or participate in some of the events here. There are lots of posters going up in the coming two days, including some from uh, our PICU and uh, our pediatric cardiology co colleagues, uh, poster, I believe, from our Manchester colleagues in cardiology as well. I saw Lacey come in. Did I see? Dr. Colligan, who we count as our own for sure, is and made two keynote presentations this week along with Sam Casella and Johanna Bellavo. So once again, Chad is leading the way when it comes to patient safety and quality. We have Grand Rounds, our first Resident graduating presentation is next Wednesday, Dr. Hillary Spencer, about Pediatric Palliative Care and Resource Limited Settings. Uh, spring will be, as I said, springing on Friday, and back here again if you want to join and see where our med students are heading off to next year, it will be match day. So I have the pleasure of having Dr. Fall, who, who, who invited Dr. Colson to introduce Dr. Colson for Grand Rounds, and so I will take my leave. Thanks, Keith. So this is my great pleasure. Um, Eve and I have known each other for a very long time. Um, she's uh, Eve is a professor of pediatrics at Yale, and while I was doing inpatient pediatrics, she was doing normal newborn pediatrics, so she has been the director of their normal newborn nursery there um, as well. We've also known each other for many years. She's a clerkship director um, in pediatrics, and many of us here know her through her work in medical education um, for at least 10 years, I think, at this point um, as well. So um, I was excited when Eve agreed to come up here and do medical education grand rounds for me yesterday. And for some of us, we got a chance to talk yesterday about longitudinal clinical electives and also thinking about interprofessional health, which is another major um, area of interest and expertise for Eve. From an education perspective, she's got a master's in health professions education from the University of Illinois which is a very prestigious place, and was one of the very first um, Josiah Macy uh, Foundation Fellows for her work in interprofessional health education. But today, timed quite well to our Quality and Safety Week, um, Eve's going to come talking about her other passion, which is changing behavior and quality and safety, um, and using the normal newborn nursery, or the well newborn nursery, as it's called at Yale, um, really as her laboratory to do that. Um, and I think one of the exciting things that Eve's really been working on as a qualitative researcher is to better understand how we change behavior utilizing safe sleep, for example, but I think really tied in well to some of the work we've been doing in education in terms of educating about the other competencies um, is to think about how to use our daily activity to think about continuing to educate ourselves about how we do quality and safety, not just as specific projects, but really do it in our, um, in our everyday lives. So without further ado, Eve. Good morning, everyone. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Great. Okay, so I'm a, I'm a walker and a talker, so I'm going to probably walk around here. So um, thank you very much for the introduction, Leslie. Um, and I'm going to talk to you. She explained very well what we're going to talk about today, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. 
Um, I just want to say that I have no dis conflicts of interest um, to disclose, and I wanted to say that a lot of the research that I'm going to be talking about today has been funded by the National Institute of Child Health and Human and Development. So first I want to say thank you so much for inviting me, Leslie, and for coming today. And I have several reasons why I'm very excited to be here. One is I'm going to talk to you about my, one of the topics that I've been really passionate about over the years, which is about infant safe sleep inf to reduce infant mortality, and um, talk about how we've thought about changing practice related to behaviors. I'm also really excited to be here because I get to see Leslie. And I also get to see a number of other friends here who I haven't seen in a while, and, um, and including Jack. Hi, Jack. You stole him from us a number of years ago. <laughs> We'd like him back, but I'm sure he doesn't want to come back necessarily, so that's wonderful. Um, and I had a nice dinner uh, with a number of people last night. Um, I also have to disclose that um, I love to ski, and so I'm going skiing tomorrow. <laughs> That's another really good reason to come up here. And of course, this is me skiing. <laughs> Not really. Um, but that's, I love it up here, I really do. And um, I've actually had quite a bit of experience up here because, do you recognize that building? What you may not know about me, and what I don't think Leslie mentioned, is that I did my first two years of medical school here. So I had a really wonderful experience. I learned a lot. Um, I skied on the golf course. Um, I knit during class. So all of you knitters, it's awesome. I understand knitting really keeps you. Yes, I, I made my first really ugly sweater there. It was awesome. I learned a lot about knitting. And I also, but I really am sad because knitting is a no-no at, at Yale. So I was hoping that I would actually see knitters in the audience. So that's great. Um, so I wanted to just say something. How many of you, so I said, do, didn't we just have grand rounds about this topic, about infant safe sleep and about what people are doing? And you're wondering, why is she here? Didn't somebody else come and do this in fall? How many people saw my friend Rachel Moon? Okay, were you wondering, like, what the heck, we're having this again? So, so I just want to tell you a story about this. So Rachel's a good friend, and we're collaborating on one of the projects that I'm going to show you. and. Um, a couple months ago, we were talking, and we were talking about all of us collaborators getting together this week. And I said, oh, I can't do that. I'm going to be at Dartmouth giving grand rounds. And she said, oh, I just gave Dartmouth grand rounds at Dartmouth. So I said, uh-oh. <laughs> so we talked. And I know a bit about um, what she talked about. And I'm going to kind of take a different tact and talk about something a bit different. So you will learn something, hopefully, today, other than what Rachel's wonderful. I'm sure she updated you on all the recommendations. So the goal today would be to think about safe sleep as a health-related behavior, okay? So when you think, I'm going to give you an example of what we've thought about, what we've done, but I think you can think about this within your own context um, and think about health-related be behaviors that you might want to address. And so, for example, do you have any patients who you feel don't follow the recommendations that you give them? <laughs> really? Really? Oh, that's so different. That, no, I'm just kidding. Everywhere. Okay, right? So for example, do you ever recommend vaccinations that people don't want to get? I know we deal with this a lot. We're um, actually investigating. Do you, I don't know if you guys have this or not, but we're starting to have more and more mothers not wanting to give vitamin K to their newborns. So it's, it's you know, there are issues related to following recommendations. Um, do you always follow health recommendations? Okay, probably not, right? Like, when was your last physical? 
Okay, doctors are notorious for being bad about this. So I just wanted to point out that you know while we're talking about health, safe sleep recommendations, there are lots of recommendations that are that we'd like our patients to follow that they don't always. So we have to work with them around that, and then we may not even follow recommendations. So the objectives here would be to identify gaps in following safe sleep recommendation. And the data I'm going to be showing you is from a, um, a project that Rachel wouldn't have had access to. So it's the newest data on what's going on nationally with regard to safe sleep behavior. Um, and then uh, consider, I want you to consider a framework for change. How would you change what you're doing in your practice? And then um, Again, begin to think about the possible approaches to your own practice. Okay. So I just want to remind you a few things about um, safe sleep. So more than 4,000 infants die each year um, from sudden unexpected infant death. So I do specifically say safe sleep and not SIDS because SIDS is part of this big group. But there are also babies who die from trauma, from suffocation, from entrapment, and from asphyxia who all fall into that group of um, sleep-related deaths. Have you guys had babies coming into the emergency room having been in a bed or whatever where there's an issue? Who, who works in the emergency room? Have you been seeing any babies like this? Because I know we do, um, not infrequently in our emergency department. So um, it is an issue. And because of that, the American Academy of Pediatrics, I'm sure you're all familiar with this. Rachel was here. She reminded you that uh, safe uh, to sleep in a supine position is what's recommended to share a room but not a bed, um, to sleep in a safe space but no soft bedding, and to use a pacifier when placed to sleep. Some of these um, recommendations maybe you have question marks in your mind about, and we certainly can get to that at the end if you have questions about that. So I wanted to focus on what we've done to try to get at um, what's done baseline in this country related to sleeping position, and also what we've learned enough to actually do now a randomized trial of different interventions. So we finally got into the part where we're doing interventions. So the big study that if you, if you know about um, national data on safe sleep, what people are doing related to bed sharing and all that, you've probably heard it from some of the work we've published through the National Infant Sleep Position Study, um, the most recent articles that we have out there about the number of people who sleep um, with their babies, where number of babies who are placed on their back to sleep and all that. We've changed our strategy because that was telephone surveys and um, how many of people of you, uh, how many of you would be willing to answer the phone and answer questions like how you put your baby to sleep and all that? Like nobody answers the phone anymore if they don't recognize the ID. So that's, that's the caller ID. Or they, they do, like I do uh, in my home phone, I'll say, oh, I, oh, I'm cooking dinner right now. I can't really talk. Bye. So nobody really wants to talk on the phone to some stranger. So we, we lost our ability to get a really good national sample that way. So while the infant, uh, National Infant Sleep Position study was going on, we ran some focus groups with high-risk groups. Um, we went to WIC centers to try to understand what families were doing and did face-to-face -face interviews. And then, most recently, we've done the SAFE study, which I'm going to talk to you a little bit more about. And then now we're doing our randomized trial of, of an educational intervention. So this is my line, my little line. So this shows you kind of how what I was doing in my career and how it went along with all this work that was being done. So I was a fellow in general academic pediatrics. Um, I actually 
noticed in my clinic practice while I was a fellow that even though back to sleep was recommended um, in 1992, um, I know exactly when it was recommended because it was recommended in March of 1992. I'm sorry, in April of 1992. My first child was born in March of 1992, and she was on her stomach. And a month later, the recommendations for back came out, and I freaked out. Mm -hmm. And I went to my program director, who actually happened to be on the AAP committee that made the recommendation. I said, what am I going to do? And she, he said, you can't do anything now. She's used to it. So, so I like hovered over this kid who's turning 23 tomorrow. So she was OK. All right. So um, then I became, the, having noticed this in fellowship, I became nursery director. And I went to the nursery in 1998 to be the nursery director. And I was looking around. And I'm like, oh my. We are not placing our babies on the back to sleep. We're tilting the cribs so that they're all scrunched up at the bottom. We have all kinds of stuffed animals and stuff in there. Many of them are on their side. A few were on their stomach. And I thought, this has been a lot of years. Why, isn't, why aren't we able to do this? So I got really interested in, in what was going on. And then my master's in health profession education not only helps me as a clerkship director, but it helps me think about systems and systems of change and behavior um, so it really helps me when I think about my work um, related to SIDS as well and safe sleep. So I want to talk to you about the SAFE study. Um, it's called uh, Study of Attitudes and Factors Affecting Infant Care. We like to find fun. We spend actually at least one meeting trying to name our studies. Um, and the objective of this study was to determine the prevalence of and factors associated with following the AAP recommendation in a nationally representative sample of of mothers of young infants. So how do you do that? So actually, backing up for one second, what I was doing, because I was a nursery director, what I did in the nursery is I, I got no funding for this, but early on in my um, practice as the nursery director, I just changed practice in the nursery by not with any really specific um, framework to do it, but I just like visited the nurses and, and did, did in-servicing and went in at the middle of the night to catch the night people and taught them about safe sleep. And we changed practice there. And what I noticed is, is, is that it changed behavior. So we went from 42% of the mothers putting their baby on the back to 75% of the mothers putting their baby on the back, just from this very inexpensive study in one center. And it got published, which I was really excited about. And then um, these national people came and found me and said, how did you do that? We need to think about how to do this nationally. And so that's how I got involved nationally. So this study, we're, we went to maternity units, kind of like what I had done. And we used a probability sampling. And we went to 32 hospitals across the country. And statistically, these hospitals actually are a nationally representative group of people. So that was really cool. This is really the first time we've been able to get a true nationally representative sample. And as you can see, it's um, all over the country. I don't know if this works or not. Oh, it does. Cool. It's mostly also, a lot of them are clustered in New England. And we've got a bunch in California. Um, and that's because that's where most of the people live. But it is representative of the United States. And um, it also gave for some really cool travel. Like I got to go to, I got to, go to this place in New Mexico. Um, that was really in the middle of nowhere and um, really close to um, Indian Health Services Reservation. So that was really cool. Somehow my colleagues all got these. I don't know why. Um, but anyway, it was really interesting to go to a lot of different hospitals around the country.
So we recruited mothers from these hospitals who spoke English or Spanish, and, um, we and they had to anticipate that the infants would be home with the mother at the time of the survey. And we aim for recruitment about 1,250 participants every year and for 1,000 completed surveys. I'm going to present to you year one data, because that's what we've presented already. We've now done three years, and we've got over 3,000 mothers participating. Um, and we actually recruited a lot of, um, of the typically hard-to-reach participants. We got a really good, hearty sample of, of those. So they took the, they were recruited. They took the survey when the infant was two to six months of age. It was done online by 66% of them. So what, one of the things that we learned is that you actually can get people to do things online. So I think one of the big take-home messages is that, um, that online is now accessible to very many people. The majority of people who didn't do it online and did it over the phone were those who were actually spoke only Spanish. Okay. And um, they answered question about sleep-related behavior. And we performed a weighting and adjusted cluster sampling, and we calculated weighted results based on demographics to make sure we were getting a national sample, and we adjusted for when we were doing our logistic regression. So for this year one, and each year was very much like this, we, had, um, we enrolled 1200, over 1,200 mothers. And we had over 1,000 mothers complete the survey, which was 81%. So our response rate for these mothers was 81, has been over 80% over the three years, which we are really grateful for the, these busy moms who are, have new babies. But they liked to, and the surveys were pretty long. So we were really lucky about being able to get this many participants. And as you can see here, we had 61% um, of them were white. 13% black, 25%, over 25% Hispanic. And if you look at the national data for that year, it's almost exactly the same. So we did a really great job of, I mean, I have to say our research associates were amazing at recruiting and retaining the participants. Um, and so we did a nice job of matching the national data. So what did we find? So what is the prevalence of usual sleep position by race and ethnicity? And this is the latest data. Um, we presented at PAS last year. You should see our paper coming out soon. But you're among the first to see the most recent data from a really good national sample. So what we f found for, in terms of sleep position, usual sleep position, overall about 74% of the mothers reported that they usually place their babies on the back. But uh, we had 15% say the side and 9% prone. But if you look at mothers who, were, uh, who um, identified themselves as being black, you'll see that fewer, only 63%, usually place their baby on the back, 15% side, but 20% usually place their babies on the stomach or prone to sleep. We, this has been something that has been seen before in data, so we're really just saying, yes, this is true, there is a difference, and this, is, this also is a higher risk group. They're at higher risk for um, sudden unexpected infant death related to sleep. So then we looked at the, um, uh, the prevalence of safe sleep by region. So again, you see the numbers of, of usual supine sleep, usual back sleep, and what you can see is that, 60, that the South was different than other parts of the country. I guess I can say this in New England that maybe we, sh we expected that, right? No. <laughs> um, but what we see is that 65%, only 65% place their babies on the back to sleep, and 14% choose prone. 
Did you um, adjust that for race? Um, that a great question. Yep, we did. So, um, And then I'm going to just talk about bed sharing, and then we did adjust both of those things for race. Okay. So um, overall, for bed sharing, usually bed sharing, 66% um, follow the AAP guidelines where they don't usually bed share, but they room share. We have 15% who where the babies go into their own bed and uh, on their own, in a different room, and 19% where we have babies who sleep, who usually bed share with their families, with their mothers or family members. And what I want to point out is that for white families, 23% usually put the baby in their own room in their own bed. 18% um, of black families bed share, and 29% of Hispanic families bed share. So the prevalence of bed sharing by region what you can notice is that it, overall 19%, and it nicely goes up here that you can see in New England, Northeast, 20% um, bed share, I mean, I'm sorry, 12% usually bed share, 14% usually bed share in the Midwest, 20% in the South, and in the West, 26% usually bed share. And these were many of the California sites. <laughs> I wasn't being judgmental. <laughs> Um, okay, so these are the adjusted odds ratios. So this is the one for um, prone and supine by race and ethnicity, and we adjusted for, the, at the bottom, you can see we adjusted for geographic region, infant age, gender, birth weight, maternity, maternal parity, age, education, income, and race and ethnicity. And I want to just highlight a couple of things. This one right here, so you can see prone sleeping compared to white infants, black infants were significantly more likely to be placed in the prone position for sleep. And I'm um, sorry, also over here, we can see for supine sleeping, um, Hispanic black infants, and to some degree Hispanic infants, are less likely to be supine. Um, in the south, they're less likely to be supine. Black infants are more likely to be prone. And um, in the south, um, infants are more likely to be prone. So even when it, you asked the question about adjusting, so those were still the case. And with bed sharing, what we found really is it, once we adjusted, it was really related to the region. Compared with being in the west, people living in the northeast were less likely to bed share. Okay. So conclusion was that infants continue, now we have our baseline, continue to usually be placed to sleep in other than the supine position, and that infants continue to bed share. So what about advice? So we know this baseline data. What we tried to do with these surveys is to find out what advice are people getting. And, and so we found, I want to particularly uh, highlight a couple of things. One is when it comes to sleeping position from a doctor, 20% of them said that they got no advice about infant sleeping position from a doctor. And 55.4% said they got no, no advice from a nurse about sleep position. And in ter I'm sorry, uh, no advice from a doctor about bed sharing, which maybe isn't so surprising, the bed sharing part, because I think some of us are a little ambivalent about that, so we just don't say anything, but we can talk about that later. From a nurse, t almost 28% said that they got no advice about sleep position, and almost 60% said they got no advice about bed sharing. Um, and then I just want to show you about family. Um, they, family and media are important. There's still not a lot of advice out there from either one, but 
9% of them said that they got advice from family members that w was inconsistent when it comes to, to sleep position. So they have people in their family telling them they may get inconsistent message, some from in the hospital, some from their family that differs. So my conclusion from this is that infants continue to usually be placed to sleep in other than the supine position. Infants continue to bed share and that parents are not necessarily receiving the advice that we would want them to receive. So I, have a, I want to stop here for a second, and I want to say, ask you, so what's happening here? And since you might not want to talk about what you've observed in your hospital, I'll first divulge to you that even though in uh, 1998, 99, and 2000, I worked really hard to get all the infants on the back to sleep in our well newborn nursery, and I think we're doing still pretty well with that. Um, when I go to our NICU, when I go to the, the floors, it's just not consistent. And we keep having babies coming into our hospital who have died from unsafe sleep practices. And so don't, if you say that you don't always do the, the recommendations, you're not alone. So anybody want to talk about what's done here? or are, we always, are you always consistent? Do you ever have twins together? Do you ever have people with heavy blankets? Do you, this is a big one. People falling asleep in bed with their baby, side sleeping. People falling asleep on the chair in the room or, I mean, just, I'm talking about in the hospital. This could also be at home, obviously. Any of that? Oh, great. Hi, Bonnie. How are you? Good. So we've done a lot over the last couple of months or last year at least on improving our safe sleep procedure and doing a lot of staff education. And um, every two hour pounding of the room, checking in, making sure that moms are asleep and having their babies. Uh, and then updating our safe sleep procedure, had Rachel Moon here to kind of do some extra education around it, recommending the bed sharing. I mean, everything that's in the AP guidelines, um, what we are, we did have all, I'm um, not sure if we can this here, but there was a study this summer where a nursing student actually did interviews with families, um, families and nursing staff to find out what they were recommending and what they were observing. We found that even though there's a lot of staff education and patient education up there, the moms are still too far to sleep in bed with their babies. Um, and so the kind of every two-hour rounding is part of that. Mm -hmm. It's hard. Um, our parents are sleep-deprived. Really just wanted to try to make sure that they have the education. I think recognizing that they need the education before the baby's born uh, is a, a big part of it. And so that's great. Oh, you, really important points. Thank you. Allison? I would say something about the inpatient unit, which is, you know, the children are sick. They've often been sick for days before they got there. The parents are really very tired. If we don't, I mean, at least the way we are now, we'll see how we are with we're being remodeled. We don't give the parents a very good place to sleep themselves, and it's a recliner chair. It's probably the absolute worst place if you're trying to comfort your your sick baby. And if, if you're, you're tired, you're falling asleep. Yep. And the child is sick and uncomfortable and scared. Right. So, so yeah, thank you. That's a, an issue in a lot of places. Um, so I just wanted to bring that up because I actually went on the internet and found these, and it's so easy just to find all these. And I will—I don't know if Rachel talked about it, but she did a study looking at magazines, and um, and and it's—it's it's, the messages are all over the place that you can 
sleep like this with your babies, and, and it's so cute. And in fact, in our hospital, as we were doing this, this um, around different hospitals in the, around the country, we'd walk into some of the hospital units and find pictures you know, of babies from the photo companies, of babies sleeping in all the ways that we don't recommend. And then I came back to Yale, and I looked at our photos from the photo company that flash, you know, it's a, a digital photo thing as you enter the unit. And I'm like, oh my god, we're doing the same thing here. So I've been trying to change that. Um, but the other thing I want to just say is that, and maybe you've noticed this, Bonnie, as you're doing things, is that our advice really matters. Okay, so I showed you what we're not doing or what we are doing in terms of advice. But with relation to sleep, safe sleep, and everything else, it's been shown multiple times in multiple different studies that our advice really does matter and it really does change what people do. And I especially like to emphasize this with nursing staff because sometimes they feel they're beating their head against the wall because people aren't paying attention. But it really does matter what we do. And I just want to emphasize that. Um, I, I would, in the part we were just talking, I was just going to share my personal experience in the nursery as a mom, and I think that one of the challenges is that advice is a million things of what not to do, mm. and there are zero options of what you can do. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I had an induction, and you know, bad labor, blah, 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 and two days of screaming baby, and blah, 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 and, and I got scolded. I actually did get scolded. Good. You know, we're doing a good job scolding parents for, for dozing off with my baby in bed. And then I said, okay, well, you know what? I need to sleep. Can you take the baby? And I got scolded about why it's bad for me to have, be away from my baby and whatever. And I, like, lost it. I totally lost it. Um, and I think that that's one of the challenges is that we don't give, we give a lot of advice, but we don't give good options of what family, families should do. And I think some of the best advice I got as a mom about sleeping was actually from a bunch of physicians telling me how to bend the rules. Like that was by far the like life-saving advice yeah. was a bunch of physicians basically right. saying, you know, it's okay, and um, here's the here do the safest thing that you can do, and you're not going to follow the rules. But I sort of did this, and I did this, and and like a lot of people in this room gave me all kinds of tips about how to make, break the rules in a not so terrible way. Right. So and I think that's part of what advice needs to be is alternatives and options that are not just stick your kid on this hard thing on their back. And if they scream or, you know, whatever, and just they, you know, hold them until they fall asleep, right. it just doesn't work. Well, it's very controversial, that, that what you're saying. And just, just so you know, I have three kids, and I had, you know, I've, I, I get it. Yeah, we all, we all. <laughs> so, um, but, but tr trying to make a, a public health recommendation that allows for to decreasing risk is tough. So we can talk more about that as we go through. Um, so, so. Since we, um, we know that advice matters, the question is, is what are the barriers to giving advice? And so we actually did, as Leslie mentioned, I do qualitative research. And so we went to the people who give the advice, the staff in the well-newborn nurseries and, and on the floors and in the NICU and tried to find out what was going on. So the, the second, another piece of the study was to identify factors and barriers to modeling and teaching safe sleep recommendations in the hospital inpatient setting to guide development of nursing education. Because the idea is we were going to then go out to hospitals and, and try to change practice in a randomized way. So we did our data collection um, using, um, for those who know qualitative methods, using a single research associate focus groups interview guide. We're trying to find out 
what they do to change practice fast. So one thing that I, I noticed is, I don't know, do you guys have, um, did your state tell you have to do congenital heart screening? Because yes. Okay, so our state recently told us we had to do that, and like within a day, it's done. We're doing it. It's, every baby gets done. But, but we recommend all these safe sleeping th things, and that doesn't seem as easy to get going. Or do you guys have universal hearing screening? Yes. We got it done. You know, it was mandated, we did it. But, but somehow these recommendations just don't take. So we asked them, well, if you have to do it fast, what do you do? Well, how do you spread the word? Um, and, and, if you, and what about safe sleep? What do you know about it? How, how have you tried to make changes? Um, so we could learn more about that. And audio taped and transcribed. Um, we use grounded theory, constant comparative method. It was an iterative process with multiple coders and themes and some software. Um, and we had five focus groups with a total of 41 nurses. And I, will, I should have put 41 staff, because we had a couple of what we call environmental associates or um, the housekeeping staff come to them. And actually, I was so glad we did that, because they had so much information about what went on in the rooms, um, way more than anybody else. And um, we used hospitals in Virginia and Connecticut. And, and we were in NICU staff, well newborn nursery staff, and inpatient. And then I just wanted to talk to you about this um, framework to think about change and change of healthcare, um, healthcare provider behavior. Because if you're trying to think of making change, is there, is there anything that you can think of right now on the top of your head, change in your own practice, where you are, what you might want to change in terms of behavior, or recommendations? I want you to be trying to think about that, too. Um, and then you can think about this model. And I, I like this model. Um, it, there are lots of different change models, but this came, became very intuitive to us. And what we realized, even before we looked at the model, we did the coding, but then realized it fit perfectly in this model. <laughs> what happened? Fine. Okay. <laughs> um, so, so the things to look at in change are one, um, innovation. So this is an innovation, right? So it ha it's like a self new cell phone. Do you remember like? when we didn't have cell phones, and then all of a sudden we had cell phones, and then do we really want to use the cell phones? And So how do you, when you have an innovation, how do you show that it's an advantage? How do you show that it's feasible? How do you show that it's credible? How do you make it accessible? Um, how do you make it attractive? So some of the concepts even of social marketing are in here, I think. Individual professional or healthcare provider, how do you make them aware? How do you give them knowledge, attitude, motivation to change, and behavior routines? For the infant caregiver themselves, um, what do you do about knowledge, skills, attitude, and compliance? You can see also that this also fits into education theory. Um, social context, what are, what are the opinions of your colleagues, right? This influences us a lot. Um, culture of the network, collaboration, and leadership. So probably in this room, I know Kim talked about her feelings about bed sharing and how to deal with it. Somebody else, as you were talking, might say, no, you can't sleep with your baby at all. I can't believe somebody here told you it was okay. You know, I'm just making that up a little bit. But probably there's a lot of different opinions in this room. Um, organizational context, care processes. How, is how do the staff work? What are their capacities? What are their resources? What are their structures? And when you start to think about even about, is there, are there any residents in the room? No? So when you guys, do you guys have quality and safety projects? These are the kinds of things you should be thinking about when you think about your projects. And then the economic and political context, you can't forget that because there's financial arrangements that happen, there's regulations, and there's policies. That, to some degree, is why the congenital heart screening went so fast. 
That's why when Jayco says you have to do this and I'm coming in next week to make sure you're doing this, it goes fast, right? It's the governing bodies telling us what we have to do. And if there's not a governing body telling us what to do, we may be slower at doing it. And just to give you an idea, so the state of Connecticut a couple weeks ago put forth a bill by one of our new senators, Ted Kennedy, he's now a state senator, um, and he put forth a bill that said all hospitals have to distribute information about safe infant sleep. And the information has to be consistent with the American Academy of Pediatrics. I don't, you know, I think we all do distribute the information anyway, so I'm not sure that's going to make a big difference, but the fact that it's gone to the legislature is an interesting thing. Okay, so the results from our study, talking to the nursing staff within this framework, in terms of innovation, now, I'm a qualitative researcher. My data in qualitative research is going to be quotes. So get ready, you're about to see some quotes. And I'm going to read them out loud, so you're going to read along with me. So I'm just warning you that we're going to do that. Leslie and I talked about this this morning. I thought this would be a good way to get you ready for the quotes. So in terms of credibility, so one nurse said, Dr. X will tell you I was like our babies were vomiting and gagging and spitting all over the place, and the idea of putting them on their back to sleep was really hard but she did have the patience to explain things to me, and with a little faith, it, it worked out well. So what she was saying was she made, that this physician made it credible to me. I didn't believe it. I was worried about gagging. Anybody here think the nurses in our units are worried about gagging and choking? Bonnie back there has her hand up. So, so this is a big deal. It's been a big deal for years and years and years, and somebody was able to work with her and actually Dr. X was me because I that was when I first did my my intervention but um, but this works really well when you make it credible to somebody individual health care providers are they even aware so one of the nurses said I did not know if there were any new updates on the net that have come out because we have not heard anything so I mean, to keep us updated if there are changes in the American Academy of Pediatrics and to keep us apprised of them would be important. This is just like last year, so it's not, some, it's not like years ago before the recommendations or anything. This is still happening. And I think you could apply this to lots of other things that you might want to change. Infant caregivers. Will the people that you tell what you think actually do what you want them to do? Sometimes it's hard for their, for their moms because all of those baby-friendly initiatives, we kind of want the baby to stay in the room with the moms, rooming in with the moms, and sometimes they do not have anybody in there, so they fall asleep. So this goes along with what Kim said. And I can say myself, and, and I don't know, somebody might shoot me when I say this, but I think that there's a big... Um, a big uh, disconnect between the baby-friendly, there's some disconnect between baby-friendly recommendations and safe sleep recommendations. And that's created a bunch of controversy, controversy especially when it comes to bed sharing. And, um, and also rooming in. So we're moving also to baby-friendly. We're trying to get all of our mothers to room in. And I think of myself when I had my three kids, and I think, and I didn't have surgery. So, and I thought, you know, when I had my third kid, I was like, you. It's really okay. Take her to the nursery. It's really okay. And I felt like I was tired. I wanted to get a really good night's sleep as much as I could, you know, at least four hours in a row. Because, and she was big. She was on like 
eight and a half pounds. I was like, she'll be fine. Um, just let me, let me sleep a little bit. Because I knew I was going home to young kids, right? Even more, I wonder about how mother-friendly we are when we take a woman who just had surgery. So let me ask you a question. If we had a mother or father come in with emergent appen ruptured appendectomy, so abdominal surgery, would we then leave their newborn or infant, their three-month-old, with them in the room after their emergent appendectomy, a male or female? Of course we wouldn't. They just had surgery, right? We, we wouldn't want them. They're on medications and they're, they're exhausted. Well, what about the moms who had even the, even the elective C-sections, but even more, the moms who've gone through labor for 48 hours and then had an urgent, emergent stat C-section, they're exhausted. They, they're not in their right mind. So I do worry about the falls and all that. So, they, so there is some conflict between wanting the baby in the room all the time and somebody who just had surgery. So I'm just putting that out there. Um, social context collaboration. Okay, this is also a big one. I'm not interested to hear if this comes up for you guys at all. So one nurse said, I think she's amazing, um, uh, talking about another nurse, and I feel like she's knowledgeable about what, her, about what her job, and I feel like sometimes the pediatricians are not knowledgeable about certain things that nurses do or, like, or know, like just little things that we do all the time in terms of taking care of the patients or knowing more. Like I think that's a, uh, uh, taking away a bit from her job. It's kind of putting her down a little bit. Does that resonate with anybody? So I feel like in, in our nursery sometimes we try to do certain things and then pediatricians don't necessarily agree with what we're doing and they come in and say something completely different. So I know that there was a pediatrician in our practice who um, is okay with not vaccinating, is okay with not giving vitamin K, is okay with all sorts of things that we're a little uncomfortable with and then we they come in. So we're at odds with each other. So just the idea that as healthcare providers, we may not all be on the same page and then parents get all kinds of different messages. Organizational context. So what is our process for education? You have to inform all of the staff, even if you just wrote something up and put it in everyone's mailbox. So how many of you are unit directors or sort of heads of, if Bonnie is? So we don't always know um, how things, I think even as unit directors, how information gets out to the staff, right? And there may not be a great process in place, and the process may vary depending on what the subject is. So I think that's really important to think about what the system is in place for educating our staff and, and also the community. Um, and, and that's a complicated thing. So, and also I wanted to say, we got so much great information from nurses, not only these nurses, but from all over the country, how we should think about doing education, educational interventions. Can you expand it to sleeping car seats, or a lot of moms now are putting children in the 45 degree kind of bouncy seats that they can just take around the house or in walk-in place? Well, we, we are collecting that data, and when we do the teaching, we tell them, you know, flat surface, firm mattress, you know, all the things um, that you're supposed to do. and. If it comes up, no, you know, we do teach the staff no car seats. I don't know that we're specifically in our intervention saying that, but it is. We're just we're saying what it is, the, where it is they should be sleeping. So it's a good question. Okay, and then economic and political context. This goes along with, with what you heard from Rachel. One of the nurses said, "Well, I think they're selling a lot of things now, 
like the bundle and the little things that they can put behind their backs, the wedges, the sheets, and all of those things. And those things are cute, and they're nice um, if the baby's awake and you're watching the baby. But I think that they do not say, um, but when your baby's sleeping, they should be on their back. So I think those advertisements and things. So this is a big issue. I, you know, I round in the nursery still, and, and when I come in, I see big, heavy blankets like taking up the entire bassinet. Um, you know, uh, all kinds of things in the crib, and I just get a sense of that's what's going to be going on at home. So a lot of stuff is sold that isn't necessarily the safest for the baby. And so. Our, my conclusion and our conclusion from this is that behavior change for healthcare providers and parents is complex, but we believe that it actually matters what we say and that we can make a difference. So, so now what? So now what will we do with this information that we have? And I just want to talk to you about the next study that we're doing that's called the SMART study. And if you invite me back um, in a, about a year and a half, I can tell you all about this. So this is an exciting study where we've taken 16 of the hospitals that we had worked with of those 32 that I showed you a picture of, and we ran, randomly assigned them to four groups in each hospital. And actually, those of you who are interested in breastfeeding also will have some information for you as well because our intervention is the safe sleep um, one, but our uh, control is breastfeeding. And we tried, we also did try to give really good breastfeeding information as well. So. Um, so for group one, they would get a safe sleep nursery intervention, and that's kind of what I've been in charge of, and we developed a QI program. And then they also get, what's really fun too, is they get, um, well this group will get safe sleep, and then at home they would get a breastfeeding messaging. And then group two gets breastfeeding QI and safe sleep messaging once they go home. And group three gets safe sleep in the nursery and safe sleep messaging at home. And group four gets breastfeeding in the nursery and breastfeeding messages at home. And you know, we're thinking that if you give both safe sleep in the nursery and then follow it up with, I'm sorry, with, with safe sleep messaging, that that's going to be the most effective. Um, but we'll see. So we'll get to a sense of if we've cha really changed practice in the nursery, will that make a difference? And how, how does this electronic text messaging work? Um, and, and we'll also get a sense of whether we're able to change practice related to breastfeeding as well, although that is our control group. So um, when we've, we've used all of these things again, when we've thought about how to put things in place for the hospitals, and I want to just show you, so we've recruited 16 hospitals to this. They've been amazing. Um, and I want to show you, we're collecting online baseline data. Do you guys know anything? Have you had any experience with dashboards? So you get to see, this is a really good thing also for the residents. So you get to see and compare yourself with other places. So every hospital that's going through this process of changing their practice has a dashboard online. And all the other hospitals can see how they're doing, the other hospitals are doing with their dashboards. And they've, we don't say what the name of the hospital is, so there's 16 hospitals, and we don't say what they're randomized to. But they can compare with each other, and they can kind of compete with each other. When you have dashboards, you kind of get that competition gets revved up in you. It's like, oh, that hospital is doing better. We need to really pick this up. So what we learned is that at baseline, this is where all our hospitals are. So this is just very recently. Um, so we asked them to do certain observations in the hospital. So at baseline, 
we have about 72% of the babies in the hospital are actually observed in the supine position by covert observation. This is actually a really, uh, this is a resident-friendly type of thing. You can go around and you can do covert observations to see what's happening at baseline. And 52% were observed in a safe sleep environment. So only half of the babies in the hospital when they went around to look were actually observed in the safe sleep environment. Um, we asked the mothers about being told to place the baby supine, only 68%. We asked, were you told to room share but not bed, bed share, 50%. Told no objects in the crib, 58%. And told to use a pacifier after breastfeeding is established, only 10%. So you can see, even though we feel like we've, these recommendations have been made for a long time, when you actually went around and checked on them, they weren't being followed in all these hospitals. So this is where we could come in and do, we did a, a campaign. We gave them all kinds of tools based on what the nursery nurses had told us about what works to do, plan, do, study, act. Do you, have you guys heard about that? Okay. PDSA cycles. You're laughing. You've heard about it till you're like... Tired of hearing about it, right? But this is what we did. We created PDS. They, they're all doing PDSA cycles. They do their, which fits in with QI, which fits in with many hospital policies. They were excited to have the toolkit to do the PDSA cycles, and our toolkit included lots of really nice. Um, inf um, they really loved, and I, if you guys are interested, I can share these with you. Um, they have both breastfeeding and um, and safe sleep cards, laminated cards that they can bring to the bedside. And what they showed is pictures of um, families and testimonials from real families whose babies died in um, unsafe sleep circumstances. That Those testimonials then went along with videos that the families get via texting. And they had um, information to provide for their administration, information to provide for other health care providers, suggestions about how to change behavior. So we set up all of this in a campaign. And then they would choose which things to do in each of their cycles to get up to their goal. And many of the places have gotten to close to 100% in their goals um, in changing practice. Okay, so. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop in a minute to give you time to ask questions, but I just want to review again the goals of what we were trying to do. So I wanted you to say, think about safe sleep as a health-related behavior, and as you're doing that, think about other health-related behaviors that you see in your own environment and start to think in your head, what might I do in a small way, in PDSA cycle type of way, to change practice, because you really can. Um, what's your baseline? What qualitative or quantitative approach might you be able to take? And how would you design your intervention? Which can be very small, and you can still make a big difference. Um, the objectives were to identify national gaps following, in following safe sleep recommendations. So now you've, hopefully you know what the gaps are. Considering a framework, like the GROW framework, to think about change so you know what things you need to address. And to begin to think about approaches in your own practice. So I just also want to say thank you to our many collaborators in Safe and Smart. And you will notice that my friend Rachel is right here. And um, I don't know, for those of you very experienced with breastfeeding may know Ann Kellums. Um, she's, very, she's been really helpful to us in the breastfeeding <coughs> part. 
Um, and then we have gotten funding from the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, and also we've gotten some funding from the CJ Foundation for Kids to be able to do this. And what we're hoping is that the what we find in our randomized control trial is that we're going to find an intervention that works, that we can then say this really works and all the hospitals should engage. So I say thank you, and I'm happy to ask, answer any questions. Great. With Thank you very five much. minutes so to spare. Go ahead, uh, Shelley. I was wondering if you um, have any um, thoughts on the use of social media as a way to um, get messages out. Yeah. Keep track of whether it's MySpace or Facebook or not. Yeah. So I think that's a, a great idea. And actually, because we had some funding, we um, employed a um, an agency that actually helped us think about how to market all this. So we did social marketing. Um, we didn't choose to do Facebook um, at this point, but what we did do is we used text messaging and videos and things like that that allow people, I mean, we're hoping actually that maybe some of our videos will go viral because, you know, they'll like it, they'll send it to their friend and all that other stuff. So we decided to go with the text, and text messaging actually has been shown to be effective. So we decided to try that out as our, and, and then they also helped us with social media to, des, to design our campaign and our products. So we actually were called Today's Baby, and we, you know, we're, it's called Today's Baby. It has our logo, and um, and everything we do is related to Today's Baby. Um, I really like the framing of this, of, of thinking about um, as a behavioral change or health change, and so. Um, other things that we do in primary care from the, that um, framework, um, it's been shown that our advice giving um, has like this much impact in engaging families with like motivational interviewing and other, other strategies like that. Um, and you know, figuring out what their barriers are. I share my barriers. Um, figuring out what their barriers are, helping them to address their barriers. Are you thinking about um, integrating other like, that's just one example of other behavior change approaches um, in medicine to this paradigm. So uh, it's a great question. I think two th one thing that you made me think about is, is that I should mention that we did engage families, because you talk about the, how the families feel about it. We did engage families in sort of designing our um, our social our texting and all of that. We, we actually trialed the texting with a lot of new mothers to see what they thought about it. So I just want to mention that because you made me think about that when you said what our patients think. Because I think it's really, you know, we don't know exactly. So we don't know what our staff feels like when they're trying to teach. And we also don't know what our patients feel like when they're receiving the information or how they like to receive the information. So we did go there with that. Um, in terms of other like motivational interviewing and all that, I, you know, that's not a um, framework that we used. But what we did do is when we, one of the things that we did, and I didn't show this, is we tried to develop something that was um, that was memorable for the staff about how to approach families and how to do more patient-centered um, discussions of this, rather than you know just like throwing it at them as they're leaving. So that we did do, we talked about, we talked, we thought about, you know, how do you approach families, you know, what would work, not specifically using motivational, the exact concepts of motivational interviewing, but that kind of thing. So, thank you. Kathy, um, 
Thanks, that's a great talk. I'm wondering, um, as a parent and a primary care pediatrician, part of the challenge I have is that we are getting bombarded with messages from the time we're in the nursery all the way through my kids are teenagers about all the things I'm supposed to do as a parent. So in the newborn nursery, you're talking about vitamin K, you're talking about hepatitis B, you're talking about safe sleep, car seats, smoking in the home, um, period of purple crime. All, all of it is super important, but how many of those messages are actually getting through to us? So I'm wondering in your study where you had those four arms, if you added a fifth arm that had both safe sleep and breastfeeding in the hospital and then got texted about safe sleep and breastfeeding at home, if your volume of retention actually just goes way down from both of us. Yeah, yeah. The volume overload of things that we get right. huge well, I think the volume of, yeah. and it's over. I completely agree, and not only that, but whenever I read an article in pediatrics where it says, "and pediatricians need to," right. I, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm a general pediatrician, and I think, yeah, right. Like, and, and all the other millions of things that I do in the RVUs, I'm not generating because I'm sitting in the room with the same person giving them all this information. So, no doubt that that's important, and that's one of the reasons why we thought that if you, if the staff just walks the walk without even you know, and everybody, and we're modeling it without even having to bombard them with it. I think the, the modeling is at least as important as that they're seeing what, what it is. So when a nurse comes in the room, that's when they should say, oh, you know, I just want to, oh, I noticed you have this, this, this huge blanket. Let me just talk to you about that. So they're in the room anyway. So if it becomes part of what you do all the time, then it doesn't feel like you're just sitting down and giving this information. So to make it a little easier, just making it a little bit more of a part of what you do and modeling it, I think is really important. But I agree with you. And then Bonnie, I have two, two questions about just the practical execution of this study. So, so is this randomized on a hospital basis, on an individual basis? So, so we, so this is randomized on a hospital basis. Okay. So, those hospitals who are assigned to breastfeeding in-house and breastfeeding text messages, what do they provide for safe sleeping? Standard of care. And is that spelled out? Is that? Well, they don't. They only get. They only know what their job is. So we we don't change what they've already been doing related to safe sleep. But if you're posting information about how people are doing various things, are they not motivated to also up the ante on their safe sleeping? They, don't, they see only the thing that they are randomized to. So they see the four that they're in the same group with. They don't see everybody else that they is doing a trial of safe sleep advice, right? Right. So, they, so, they, they're, so they're only seeing the results of their group that's safe sleep, safe sleep. So they only get to see what they don't, they're not, they're not given any special information about breastfeeding. They're not given any of the tools. They're not given any of the campaign. We come and present to them about safe sleep. So, so could they change breastfeeding, what they're doing breastfeeding? They could, but we're not, we're just saying, just do what you normally do. They don't know that the study involves also other arms that are breastfeeding. They, they can know that, yeah. Some of them, I mean, they can know that, okay. but they're not. They don't know what they're doing with breastfeeding. There, they don't. They're not. You know, they're not. Okay. So Bonnie, and then I'll have to finish up. I think I saw a hand way in the back. So go ahead, Bonnie. Thank you. That was great. I wanted to tie a little bit together and really just talk about where I see what we can do in the nursery, especially related to grooming, because I think we should really see it as a very positive intervention. We have a very short time with the family. Mm -hmm. That we have to talk to them about and mm -hmm. teach and guide. We should start it prenatally, monitoring them, 
model it in the nursery, and then reinforce it once they go home. But that opportunity in the nursery is really important because we can model directly in the room and view it as room sharing. And so we're promoting room sharing, having the baby in their room while the mom's asleep, and teaching them how to keep the baby calm and last night beside them. We don't want them to fall asleep in bed with so we're going to check and we're going to talk about that. But how do we, you know, we need to teach them how to keep their baby calm beside them, not mm -hmm. with them. And so what Kimmy was, you know, talking about is really rather than somebody else taking care of my baby in the middle of the night in the nursery, when I go home, I might not have that. So how do I have the tools to go home and be confident and safe? I think that's where we really need to put a lot of our focus and view it not as this baby-friendly versus safe sleep, but let's really work together. This is for promoting parents to be confident, healthy, safe caregivers and we want them to work together. Yeah, no, I agree with you completely. I think we need to come together as a, the two groups because I find that there's some friction between the two groups and I think that we need to come together and just, I, I mean, I think it would be great to take the baby-friendly recommendations for the hospitals and add safe sleep to that. But I think it does encompass that. I don't see it as... Like, I don't see those two separate entities. I think it's, you know, we're being baby-friendly. We're being baby-focused. We're being mother-baby-focused. I agree. Right. Right. I agree. I mean, there's a group of people who would say that it's not, that it's baby-unfriendly to say you can't bet share. So that's, the, that's, I think, where the conflict comes in a little bit. So. Last question. So this goes back to the beginning of the presentation. You can help but notice in the trends you pointed out in sleep patterns if there was perhaps a relationship with region, race, and so on, and socioeconomic status? And if so, would it be worth examining that further to determine what the best way to target those particular populations? That's a great question. Um, we have, we actually have done that. When I talked about the focus groups, it was focus groups of, of at-risk infants, of mothers of at-risk infants, so that we could understand better the behaviors and the concerns around um, safe sleeping. And so we've incorporated that both into the questions that we ask in the surveys. So we took qualitative data, incorporated into the questions in the surveys, which I didn't really share with you. Um, and then we've also incorporated all of that into um, this, the safe sleep intervention. So for just as an example, what we learned was um, that, for example, we learned a lot about the fears around choking. Um, and I think that may be across the board, but we did learn from the mothers of the high-risk infants that choking was a big thing and that they really didn't feel comfortable putting babies on the back because they were choking. We also learned things about bed sharing. Um, so sometimes people don't have a lot of alternatives to bed sharing. Um, and then they, they, they don't have other places, or they may live in a place where there's so many people that they have to keep the baby really quiet, or that's a big problem. And they also, some, a few mothers said that they keep the babies, want to keep the babies in the bed with them to keep them safe from things like bullets going through windows. Um, so those are issues, those are very complicated issues that we realize are out there um, and we want to at least be able to talk about. We may not be able to completely fix them, but at least be able to talk about. Um, we also learned a lot about other caregivers in their lives who don't believe in safe sleep, like grandmothers, um, partners, 
And so we do specifically, one thing that's cool about the nursery is that you often have like a microcosm of their real life and the room is an, it almost becomes like a model of their home and whoever's really important to them typically will come in to visit. And so we take the opportunity to educate all of those who come in. And I know from my standpoint, I, I, will, I will often say, oh, Everybody join the conversation about safe sleeping as you're leaving, and I might say something, and you know the, you know, the baby should sleep on the back, that's the safest position, and I see a grandmother go. So I watch body language and I'll say, oh, hmm, you seem maybe like you're not comfortable with that, can we talk about it? And so then it, it, it allows us to have a conversation, and also we've had the nurses who are in the study know that, that, that they should have that conversation, and some of the laminated cards are almost specifically targeted toward grandparents so they can show them you know a testimony or they can show them why babies won't choke on the back or you know things like that so great well thank you everybody for being here